0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Father James Martin's new book is Learning to Pray, a guide for everyone. He's here to talk today with our assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, not only about the book, but about the spiritual life. You're listening to the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Griffin. How are you? Hey, Dominic.
1: I'm doing well. Good. So you got to talk to Jim Martin. That's right. We began by discussing his new book, which is full of fascinating tidbits and information about different kinds of prayer, different ways to pray, different ways of understanding the human relationship with God. But then we got into other territory, such as the relationship between prayer and sexuality, as well as the relationship between the spiritual life and mental health. That is, what's the difference between spiritual direction, therapy, that sort of thing. So I think during the time of pandemic, it'll be particularly valuable for people to hear what he has to say.
2: Great. Why don't we take a listen?
1: Father James Martin, thanks so much for being on the Coming podcast.
2: My pleasure.
1: You begin your book with a list of reasons about why people don't pray. Could you talk about some of those reasons? What are the things that keep us from prayer?
2: I think the main reason is that people think that they're not made for it, they're not holy enough, or probably the the biggest reason is that they have tried it and they found it wanting and they find it boring or look, let's be blunt. People close their eyes, they sit down and nothing happens or they think that nothing happens or their prayer is dry and they think, I guess I'm not made for this. There's always the theory that everybody else is praying better than I am and that you know all these people have to do is close their eyes and they're flooded with this sense of mystical communion with God. But what, what's happening in their own prayer lives is what happens in other people's prayer lives, including dryness. But mainly people, get, people think it doesn't work for them and so they give up.
1: But you mentioned your own experience during your childhood mm-hmm. in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Could you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, it was something I go back to a lot in my prayer now. I grew up, as you did, in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a town called Plymouth Meeting. I was biking to school and there was a little field outside of our uh, elementary school, Ridge Park Elementary School. And I was biking across it. It was A meadow might be a little too grand. It was a field, like a lot, with a lot of flowers and goldenrod and snapdragons and Queen Anne's Lace. And it was a very warm day. I was on my bike. I must have been about, I guess, eight or nine. And I stopped my bike. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful spring day. And I could smell the the flowers and the the grass. And I just stopped my bike to look around. And I had this sense of just desire. I would say it's hard to describe. Desire to sort of possess this and to enter this world and know what made up this world. And like most mystical experiences, it was very difficult to, to articulate. But it was really pretty powerful. And I still go back to it. Mm-hmm. So it made a it made an impact on me. And I think, again, if you can invite people to see moments like that, you know, maybe holding your first child or, you know, an experience like I had in nature or even an experience in church singing a hymn. I think people will find that they have these experiences. They just, as I said, the, the word I'd like to use is from a, a Jesuit friend of mine who died about five or six years ago, Bob Gilroy. He said people aren't encouraged to talk about them or to think about them. So I've had mystical experiences and I think most people have had them as well.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things that emerges so powerfully from your writing is the importance of place. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that about how place functions in prayer. I'm thinking of your own descriptions of, say, the region of Galilee and the Holy Mm -hmm. Land, Jerusalem. What are some of the most important places for your own prayer?
2: yeah there's that celtic idea of a thin place for people where the the kind of uh, membrane if you will between the divine and the human or the whatever you want to say the heavenly and the secular is very thin and i think that differs for each person I, I have a facebook live book club now and a face sharing group but usually on facebook and i ask people about these thin places and you should have seen the the variety of places and one woman said in my chair you know at home or at my port so you don't have to go somewhere to have a thin place where God feels especially present. I think for a lot of people, it's places where they have had encounters with God. So it, it, in a sense, it sanctifies that place. For me, I would say the the places that I find the most easy to pray, the easiest to pray would be, first of all, the Eastern Point Retreat House at Gloucester, Massachusetts. I just find that you know, it's right near the ocean. I've done many retreats there. Uh, second, Lords, the Grotto at Lords is just—you, you just go there and you feel like something definitely happened here. And then, not surprisingly, the Sea of Galilee uh, and pretty much the whole Holy Land. I just find it easy for me to pray, obviously. But what is there about the, the Holy Land? Well, Jesus walked there, that just invites one into prayer. But you know, you don't have to go that far afield—no pun intended—for <laughs> your own thin place. You know, your thin place could be, you know, Times Square. It's not mm-hmm. for me, but it could be for some people. One of the things I find fascinating is so many of my directees, people that come to me for spiritual direction, say that they can pray in the subway and love praying on the subway. And I would say that for me, that is the last place I could <laughs> pray. But it's a reminder that God encounters people in different ways and that there's no right or wrong way to pray as long as you can encounter God there.
1: I want to ask you about the practice of spiritual direction. Could you talk a little bit about what spiritual direction is? How is it different from something like therapy?
2: Right. Yeah, it's a uh, spiritual direction is the practice by which someone who's trained helps another person uh, notice where god is present in their prayer and in the and in their daily life and it's basically about helping the person to notice sometimes challenging them to see where god is active and you know where the as we say in the jesuit the different spirits are active you know so the impulses that lead you towards god the impulses that lead you away from god it's not psychotherapy because it doesn't look at the psychological roots of a Problem, it's not advice. So if a person comes and says, okay, "I've lost my job," it's not okay. Here's what to do. You know, here's how to write a resume. It's not pastoral counseling. Like, let's figure out a way to to deal with this. You know, it's also not why did you cry when you lost your job? Let's look at the psychological roots. It's where has God been in your prayer and in your daily life. So it is very different from those uh, those other practices. It can have elements of them. Some advice can creep into spiritual direction, but it's basically helping the person notice where God is active. And you need someone who's trained. It's hard because I think the tendency, at least, you know, as an American who's familiar with psychotherapy and obviously someone who likes to give advice <laughs> and who's done pastoral counseling as well, it's, I think there's an internal gauge in a sense where you say, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm giving advice now. And sometimes in direction, I'll say, all right, now we're going to bracket this, or, or I'll do the advice after the direction and say, here's some straight advice, if I can give advice. But it should be on where God is active. And I, for me, there's an internal gauge that goes on. Mm-hmm. And I, I say, I'm, I'm focusing less on God in the person's life. And I, I'm starting to hear myself give advice or even creep into psychology. I'm, I'm not a psychologist. So as I quote Bill Berry, the great Jesuit spiritual writer and psychologist in the book saying, you know, it's even dangerous. You know, if you're not a psychologist, you don't want to be rooting around in someone's psychological makeup. So I I think most directors know when they're doing that. And also more direction should be about listening than Mm. about babbling on. That's another surefire indication that you're doing too much advice. You're talking too much. Mm -hmm. And yet there is an important
1: relationship between psychodynamics or psychotherapy And spirituality in general. Mm -hmm. And you bring that up at times in the book, but could you talk a little bit more about that, how you see the relationship between mental health and spirituality?
2: I think they're all connected. And so I think for a person to gradually be freed from some of the things that bind them or enslave them, you could say, in the spiritual life are often the same things that in the psychological life they have to deal with as well. I think a little psychological background and training is helpful. So I enjoy going to see spiritual directors who have some psychology backgrounds so because they can handle these things. So I think knowing that a lot of these things come from psychological history is helpful. But I think the key is, for me, is knowing when to say to a person, I think that would be a good thing for you to talk to a therapist about. Mm-hmm. Right? So, for example, you know, let's say someone has a, a very judgmental image of God. Mm -hmm. So in spiritual direction, you could talk about, you know, where does that come from? And let's talk about your image of God. And often it comes from a person's parents, right? And you can talk about that in direction and encourage the person to have other images of God and see what images God wants to you know, give to that person. But I wouldn't start talking about, let's talk about your relationship with your parents Mm -hmm. and, you know, what did they do when you were young? And so I think you can tell because... You know, you, you start to feel out of your depth and it, it's not focused on God as much anymore. It's focused on the psychology. So there, there needs to be a distinction. And I think a good director knows when to suggest to someone that, you know, therapy might be a good uh, tool in the whole process. It's all connected.
1: We're still in the midst of the pandemic. Could you talk about this, about finding God in darkness, about praying in conditions that are not ideal?
2: Yeah, it's been hard for a lot of people. By the same token, a lot of people have find, found themselves praying more because they have more time. But I also think that one of the things that's come up most frequently with people in direction and also just in day-to-day life is the the, the sort of tendency or the temptation to despair and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And in terms of Ignatian discernment of spirits, I'd like to remind them that the spirit of despair and hopelessness and uselessness is, is not coming from God. That just is never coming from God. And the spirit of, this is right out of the spiritual exercises, but it's super helpful. The spirit of hopefulness, right? And a sense of uplift and encouragement that's coming from God. So maybe the most important spiritual advice that I feel like I've been able to give people during the pandemic is despair is not coming from God and hope is. And so when you hear these Mm. voices, um, you know, interiorly or even exteriorly, meaning people who are talking to you who invite you into hope, know that's an invitation from God. When you hear voices that are tempting you into despair, know that they're not voices that are coming from God and they shouldn't be listened to.
3: Every year, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue brings together 10 international Russell Berry Fellows to study at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. There to learn about interreligious dialogue and how to build relationships across lines of difference. Russell Berry Fellows live and study in Rome for one full academic year. Take classes in ecumenism and dialogue, Judaism and Islam. Travel to Israel for a 10-day study tour, study at the Shalom Hartman Institute and visit the sacred sites in the Holy Land. And they participate in interfaith events with leading practitioners and theologians in the field of interreligious dialogue. The fellowship is now accepting applications from priests, women religious and members of the laity. Applications are accepted by April 26, 2021. For more details, visit iie.eu/berry. That's B E R R I E.
1: I want to talk about another topic that you bring up couple times you allude to in the book, which is human sexuality. Could you talk a bit about that, about how human sexuality and spirituality are intertwined?
2: Yeah, well, again, it's all about the sort of holistic approach, right? So to have a healthy spirituality, you have to have a healthy acceptance of your own sexuality. It's a gift from God. In terms of your particular question, I point to another book by a Jesuit named Mark Thibodeau, who's a former Jesuit novice director, great guy, spiritual writer. And he wrote a book called God, I Have Issues, which is pretty funny. (laughs) And the title's pretty funny. And each chapter is emotional states that you're in. I'm angry. I'm disappointed. I'm this, I'm that. I'm, I'm joyful as well. And one of them is, I think, sexually aroused. And he says something like good Christian people feel that, you know, experiences or feelings, sexual feelings during prayer are inappropriate, right? And they get embarrassed by them. But part of it is is not only being okay with it, but accepting this as a gift from God. This is part of who you are. This is part of your human life to be able to celebrate that. And you know, if it comes in terms of a distraction in prayer, to be able to be okay with that and to speak about it with God. So like any other part of your life, right? Your professional life, your family life, your relationships, sexuality is something that you should feel comfortable talking with God about in prayer. And also, you know, understanding it, if it is a distraction as not the, the worst thing in the world. We all have bodies, right? Jesus had a body, right? So, right, this is part of the incarnation. But it's such, a, it's such an embarrassment for a lot of people, unfortunately, because they've been taught that, you know, sexuality is bad.
1: You're very clear that in this book, you're writing about private prayer. Mm-hmm. But there is also the liturgy, right, which is the church's public prayer. Could you talk about the relationship between the two of those?
2: Yeah, we're social animals. I would say there's a reason why Jesus chose 12 apostles and however many disciples, 72 is one of the numbers, instead of just one. And he could have just had like an assistant, you know, St. Right. Peter, like the assistant <laughs> messiah. Right. And, but he didn't. Why is that? Well, he knew that not only would he need, you know, company and support and friendship, right? As a human being, but that also the others would need one another, certainly after he had left the earth. And so this is part of who we are today. We're social beings, we're we're social animals. We this is one of the reasons we worship in common, and one of the many reasons. And so prayer ultimately, in the end, can't be just you and God. Hmm. Right. It's most of this book is about you and God sort of personal prayer. But ultimately, it does have to, again, lead you into the community. And I think if you're only praying with you and God, then there's something missing.
1: One of the great strengths of this book is the sheer number of ways to pray that you mention. We can disagree about how to pray or why we pray or what the fruits of our prayer are. And I think one of the best things about the book is the way that it treats so respectfully some of these more traditional forms, like pre- petitionary prayer, where mm-hmm. we ask God for something. Could you talk a bit about that, coming to God from this standpoint of need, we might say?
2: Yeah, well, everyone needs things. And it, it's impossible to stand before the creator of the universe in our prayer and not feel these needs that we have, right? And now the first thing to say is, you know, it's God who draws us into prayer. This is, again, Bill Barry's great insight. You know, it's like a, it is similar to a personal relationship. And in any relationship, right, if you need something and you don't express it, it, it can block the relationship. So let's say that you uh, know a, a heart surgeon and one of your best friends is a heart surgeon and you are about to have heart surgery and you're dying to ask him or her for some advice and you don't. It, it would be very strange not to do that, you know, because you have that need. And it would block your relationship. And the, the the person on the other end, the doctor, would be saying, I wonder why this guy's not asking me for any advice. Mm-hmm. So it's part of being honest with God. And I don't know anybody that doesn't feel like they have need for something. And one of the reasons I try to elevate it, shall we say, in the book is that because it's so often denigrated mm-hmm. as childish or selfish or you shouldn't ask for things because you should be grateful. There's so many people that have it worse than you do but this is part of being in an honest relationship. And so I wanted to, in a sense, mount a defense for petitionary prayer and for other standard forms of prayer that sometimes get um, short shrift.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: One of the things that Comes
1: through in your writing and in this conversation is the sense of familiarity with God that, you, as you say, you're in relationship with uh, God who is our friend. But there's also this sense of reverence, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that sort of paradox between the everyday familiarity, but then this sort of grand relationship with the Creator of the universe. As you yeah,
2: say. yeah. I talk about it sometimes when I'm I'm praying in my chair in my room and I'm slumped down. I think, oh my gosh, I'm talking to God. <laughs> I should be a little more. <laughs> right. Maybe I should sit up. Yeah, it is. It's a it is a paradox because look, Saint Ignatius says that when we speak to God, we should speak as one friend speaks to another. I think one of the reasons is because that's the most intimate way that we can speak to someone. Right, Mm -hmm. to say a person is is not going to be helpful to talk about God. At the same time, you do have to have that sense of reverence. You know, you're communing with not only the creator of the universe but the source of all being. But I think one of the wonderful things is God reaches down to us and speaks to us in very unique and personal and intimate ways. So mm-hmm. what moves one person may not move another person, may not move a person who's listening to the podcast. One of the examples I give, which I really like talking about, I have for the past couple of years led pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And at the end of the day, every day, we have a faith-sharing group where people talk about something significant or interesting that happened in the day. And it amazes me, and it amazes all the, the pilgrims, how different the experiences are. So one person might say, oh, I got up this morning and I saw the sunrise over the Sea of Galilee and I burst into tears. Mm-hmm. And another person might have seen the same thing. Nothing happened to them. Another person will say, oh my gosh, did you hear that line in that hymn? that said X, Y, and Z. And I just found that so moving. It just made everything so clear to me. Another person will say, oh, I, when I walked into this church, you know, this happened to me. And another person will say, yeah, I, I didn't really like that church very much. It was too <laughs> right. noisy, too crowded. And so the spirit is very personal, right? And deals with people like friends, right? Very personal, very unique. And I often point out to the group, look, this is the same spirit. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty amazing that the same Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. just the Holy Spirit, which was present to Jesus and is present to us, is dealing with you like a friend, very intimately, very personally, knowing what you like, knowing what your dislikes are. And I think that's extraordinary. So to keep those both in mind, the spirit is very personal, but the spirit is also right the source and ground of all being. And it's a balance, I think, like in most things in the spiritual life, you you have to be in balance. There's a little bit of a tension there.
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the characteristics that emerges from your writing is a, a stance of humility. That is, you say, I, I'm no expert in this. Could you talk a bit about that, about the spiritual life as ongoing
2: education? Yeah, it would be like saying I'm an expert in love. Right? And right. We're all, we're all right. learning about that every day. And I don't think anybody can say they're a spiritual expert. Look, I, I have a lot of experience in spiritual direction, and I've been a Jesuit for 30 years. And uh, so I have an expertise in that sense. but. I can never say, you know, I'm an expert in God or this is how God's going to work because God's always a God of surprises, to quote Gerald Hughes' book. And I'm still learning. Just, I think, two or three years ago, I was on retreat and I had just written this book, Building a Bridge, about LGBT people, which had gotten a lot of controversy. And I wanted to talk with Jesus about it. And my retreat director, this guy named Joe, who I'd been to many times, said, well, I want you to take a walk with Jesus. And I said, um, What do you mean in my imagination? He said, No, I want you to actually walk with Jesus. And I said, Well, this, now this is like, this is supposed to be a Jesuit who's, you know, fairly, me, meaning me, fairly open. And I said, Yeah, I can't do that. I can't do that. He said, What do you mean? I said, I get distracted and I've tried it and it just doesn't work. He said, Well, I want you to try it. I said, Yeah, I, I really can't do that. And, you know, like a good director will say, Try it, right? Mm-hmm. Just give yourself to it. So the first time I went out, I went right out of the the little parlor, as they say in uh, New England, and went walking up this road by the side of Niles Pond up in Eastern Point. And I got distracted and I tried to imagine and I thought, what's going to happen now? Is Jesus going to say something to me? And I was just so unused to that kind of prayer. And I thought, well, didn't work. So, you know, knowing enough about the spiritual life, the next prayer period, I thought, all right, I'm going to try it again. And I really consciously tried to picture him next to me. And suddenly I was able to do it. I didn't have a vision, but I felt this sort of presence. And, you know, again, nothing physical, but just I could imagine him next to me with much more intentionality than I had before. And so we walked. It was much more deliberate because Jesus was walking next to me and it was less about me thinking what's going to pop into my head and really imagining him. Hmm. This is the first time I'd done this. Mm -hmm. And we walked and I said to him, what do you think about my book? And he reached over and kissed me on the cheek, Hmm. which was such a surprise. I didn't anticipate that, nor did I say to Jesus, I want you to kiss me on the cheek. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it felt really authentic. And it was a great moment. You know, it was very spontaneous and I wouldn't have been able to do that without, being hmm. challenged. Funny enough, I came back and I told my face sharing group, which is a group of Jesuits. And one of the responses was, that's the first time you prayed that way. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Meaning, you know, you're not really an expert, but it's also a reminder of huh. how we have to be open to new ways of praying and also, you know, how we can be resistant. Because I said, no, I can't do that. I've tried it before and it hasn't worked. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was a really uh, graced moment for me. So final question, what would you say
1: to somebody looking to enter a deeper life of prayer to begin spiritual direction? What are some steps that they could
2: take? Well, I would say the first thing is to recognize that the desire for a deeper relationship with God is coming from God. So I would say the same thing to someone who's starting off the life of prayer as I would to someone who's interested in direction. So, for example, someone says, what do I do? The first thing to, in a sense, do is to recognize that this invitation is coming from God and that it is a call. And that makes people feel less alone, right? And then to say, all right, let's look at where God is already active in your spiritual life, like where God has already been. And then let's start to think about different ways that you can encounter God. And the examination of conscience, which I talk about in the book, is a great way to start. So that's the person beginning. For the person who wants to deepen it even more and do spiritual direction, I would say a couple of things. One, again, this is a call. The call to direction is is an invitation from God To deepen your spiritual life so take that seriously and then i would try to you know set them up with someone and the key Hmm. insight i think for direction is get someone who's trained that is the key insight and i've had one person who was not trained and you (laughs) can see it was somewhat unhelpful and that's why Teresa vavilis says you know her famous thing which took me years to understand that if she had to choose between someone who was wise and someone who's holy she would choose someone who is wise. And for right. a long time, I thought, oh, that's like a sort of a metaphysical or the discussion about what's more important, wisdom or holiness. And I used to think about like well, wisdom is this. and No, she means she wants someone who's trained. Right. You know, she wants someone who knows knows what he or she is doing. And I went to a Jesuit once who had never been trained in direction. And, you know, he basically said kept kept saying oh you're doing a great job and keep it up and i said well any sort of comment on the prayer now you're just doing a great job <laughs> and i thought yeah that's Teresa's advice get someone who's trained someone who's wise
1: well that's a, that's very wise advice jim martin thanks so much for being on the coming Wheel podcast today
2: my pleasure thank you
1: james martin's new book is learning to pray a guide for everyone and you can find
0: it wherever you buy your books Father Martin will also be doing an event in partnership with us and our good friends at the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. He'll be talking about the book as part of our Wheel series of events. That's on March 17th at 7.30 Eastern. And you can find out more information on our website. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.